Welcome to Singular XQ, the nexus where technology, social science, and art converge. I'm Kai Bruner, an advisor at Singular XQ, and our host is founder Dr. Jennifer Pierce, whom we all know as JP. This podcast drives conversation and talk about digital transformation with the people who lead and do the work with the curiosity and passion we value in ourselves. Thank you for listening. Hello, welcome back to Singular XQ, the podcast about digital transformation. I'm here in my new studio with Ian and Jason, who you guys might remember from last season, who are from Emergent Futures Lab. Welcome back, guys. Hey, it's so great to be, be back. back. Yeah, it's great to have you back. And I was just sharing with these two, and I'll now share with this audience, this will be our first repeater on, uh, on the Singular XQ podcast, with one small exception is Laura Massa, who's a change management specialist we work with quite a lot, has joined the executive team. So she was the opening episode of the season that was more of an introduction to her as part of the founding executive team. But uh, this is the first repeater episode, and I really do hope that we have lots of people who repeat on Singular XQ because we can achieve better conversations the more we get to know each other. And I think you guys are going to get a lot from this conversation. We got a lot of excellent feedback from the last time these two were on. That's why we were we were very keen to have them back on again. Welcome back. Super cool to be back here. Thanks so much, Jennifer. It's great to be back with you here. Now we have a really great topic that I'm just going to, we, we started to talk and I was like, oh, I got to press record because the ideas yeah. and the conversation was just flying. So the theme today is can open source be a playground for innovation or rather can innovation be open source? Uh, that's the question here where we're living at a moment in history in our culture where the privatized for-profit model is so dominant in public consciousness and in popular culture and everywhere that it's really hard to think about open source innovation because right now we have the following equation. Innovation equals big paycheck. Um, so uh, I'm just going to open the floor here to you two and we'll, we'll start doing a little jam. Yeah. I mean, we're really interested in this topic for a number of reasons. And I, I think the first one that I think is really important you know, from our perspective, um, the new um, begins from the middle. It's like an, an emergent outcome of people interacting environments, tools, habits, practices. And it can't be traced, you know, because emergent things are nonlinear. It can't actually be traced back to somebody. So in a, in a radical sense, it's it's not owned by anybody as it comes into being, you know, so when we talk about open source or the commons movement, innovation is inherently um, unownable open source, a kind of commons event. And, and only then after it emerges in some manner and it's circulating through, you know, uh, literal open source pathways that it can get privatized. Um, but in that kind of foundational sense of you can only own something if you can identify it and trace it, you know, trace some pathway back. This is mine. Um, innovation is, is never that. It, it's entirely inherently emergent. Hard to pin down. <laughs> yeah. 
What are your thoughts, Jason? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a matter of getting into uh, the reality of relationality, right? Like none of us exist unto ourselves, despite what uh, we and as individuals might think, right? Or programmed to think. And you were just talking about how the arts, you know, really uh, tried to define and, and box artists into individuality. And that's very much in the world of startups and software development as well, right? Um, the lone genius. Uh, but the reality is, is um, we're all relational beings dependent upon one another. I think you said something great a moment ago. Jennifer, when we were gearing up for this uh, recording was, you know, uh, you may read my play, you're going to read my play, if you love it or hate it, either way, you're influenced by it. And uh, I loved that. Um, uh, we tend to think about the things that we consume that we like. And rarely do we consider uh, what we maybe don't like or refuse or wish not to engage with or find, as Ian might say, less interesting, right? But um, in the end, they're all impacting and pushing us in different ways, right? As we roll forward um, and as relational beings. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not much to add to what Ian opened with, but just maybe elaborating on it a little bit. Yeah. Um, I'm stopping for just a second to let you guys know that this new platform is sometimes there's lag and it looks pixelated, but it's not going to come across that way in the recording. Um, looks so like that. It stops, As right? she lags. Yeah, and there, there was something that just happened here where I missed a piece of what you said. But when, when the recording comes through on the other side, you're perfectly clear, so don't let it throw okay. you. It happens on your end. Got like, it. You guys are really pixelated on my side now, and it's yeah. not that way in the recording. This is a very popular platform, but that's one of the, the flaws in it, um, and uh, we're getting used to it ourselves. So okay. to follow up on that, talking about likes and dislikes, there's a reason that adolescents write the names of their favorite bands all over their sneakers. And their, when I was uh, coming of age, it was the binders, the denim covered binders. You would write your favorite bands and draw their logos on it. And, and then you would also have very strong things about what you hate. When I was growing up, it was, I hate disco, which actually now I love disco. But when I was a teenager, it was a moment. You guys look like you're the same age as me. I don't like to make assumptions, yeah. but around the same age, there was that moment where disco died and a new wave came out and you were either, you know, what yeah. camp you were in and, and you're, you're from the New York area. There was WLIR. <laughs> and then there was also other, other uh, radio stations that were not, not playing your favorite music, but it's the, 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 the cognitive developmental stage, right? We're learning your preferences and your dislikes as part of individuating, um, and not only individuating, but then joining uh, little groups or clans that you believe you belong to, right? And in a certain way, the internet has captured that mode uh, a lot. Like, I like these things and not these things. Thumbs up, thumbs down, the gladiators, yeah. right? Um, but yes, I think that it's really important to understand that the things that we don't like, um, failed innovations, failed creative attempts, abortive creative, uh, creative attempts are so much more useful than so so-called defined sex successful ones they're the ones that uh, really define us yeah i you know and i i think you know the bigger question too like with things like open source and 
how you're talking about a collective culture in general is it's getting more and more privatized, you know, and it's getting more and more monetized. Um, and the things that were historically, you know, out, outside of these spaces that were part of the commons, whether it was like um, shared forests, pastures, the air, the water, things that were um, classified as unownable, um, are now the opposite, you know, and and I think the tech universe um, is no different, you know, in, in that we need to understand that innovation is not about owning it and making money first and foremost, but it's like, how does it, how does it shape a world? How does it make um, certain things possible or not possible? And how do we protect that as the core of something rather than let's um, privatize this, rush to market, make money, you know, and um, have these more and more of these closed playgrounds, whether they're the Facebook type things um, or the Amazon ones now where we have privacy, you know, they're being sued as a monopoly for mm-hmm. essentially privatizing the the open space of online you know markets um you know so i I think this is like a time to push back whether it's the model of innovation we're talking about or the actuality of how we do things when i hear you saying that ian i'm thinking of the word the word that kept coming to mind was control right it's like yeah trying to control um reality as if it were linear and singular uh you know ignoring that it's you know um emergent and uh, relational and uh i think we see that time again going in, in our innovation processes that are linear um and uh and singular in nature uh not accounting for this dynamic reality that we truly do exist in and so i think open source generally mimics uh whether it be again tech or otherwise the commons which you were describing earlier jennifer um a much more um dynamic reality in which we're all truly a part of do you think uh hmm, do you think that the open ai success that we are seeing now and this explosion of chat gpt which in a way directly illustrates your point, Ian, about, you know, this pathway from open source to privatization. Do you think it's been a positive thing for open source or a negative thing? Oh my God. I, I don't, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure I could really answer like positive, negative. I think definitely, you know, these things are emerging you know, from this kind of complex mix of the two, um, you know, and I, I can see that there's certainly, um, you know, to this, the ant analogy you were both using, you know, the whole chat GBT universe or the other forms of um, AI we have have basically scraped um, all the works of literature, science, theory done by people, um, 
without considering their their ownership of it or the common ownership of this stuff and now turned it into this uh, multi-billion dollar endeavor that is being used to shape um, our social mediums, you know, like the platforms that we're interacting through um, are now these privatized, algorithmicized spaces, um, you know, where we have also no um, access to the the algorithms themselves and the types of how they shape our agency. So I think like when we think of the open um, source questions and the, the ethics of open source was also to be able to see and participate in the change making of the, the systems that we're using. We have no access to any of that. Um, but yet we have really no way not to be part of them. You know, we're shaped by all of these algorithms and our engagements and and access to public space is shaped by them, you know, whether they're like face recognition, voice recognition, whatever our Google searches. Um, you know, so when you get to questions like of ethics and open source and you know, who can show up and who shows up in what way, I mean, then it gets in incredibly um problematic that you know something might be derived from open source in some way but it's done through exploitation and then the algorithms are entirely um protected from us ever having any engagement with so i, I mean <laughs> it's uh i don't know if you can say good or bad about one part but it's a highly, highly problematic um, reality as an outcome. What are your thoughts, Jason? Well, I mean, the internet is considered um, this an open platform, right? Which ChatGPT or OpenAI rather uh, uh, vacuumed up unbeknownst to um, those that contribute to it. Uh, ignoring, uh, like Ian was saying, uh, copyrights. Um, and, uh, you know, whether you choose to engage in a, um, you know, an open uh, source uh, copyright uh, license, right? Or um, one that's more closed and commercial based, but uh, they've ignored that. And, and it's interesting now to see all of the lawsuits come. Uh, to bear, to protect. Uh, I think, you know, the writer's strike was very much based upon this exact premise, which was you cannot feed our scripts, uh, current, past, or future, into an AI model to help develop the character, to write it without a human, you know, right? Like, so um, it, you know, AI doesn't work without um, a commons, yet they're all designed truly to be um, profit profiteering ventures um, that um, exclude uh, the commons. Uh, so it's really quite interesting um, this this technological human um, battle that's you know taking shape now before us, and that is probably you know you said you know uh, 
I don't know if you said opening the bottle or whatever it was, but there's no going back, right? Like we can't turn back from this moment. It's, it's far too late. And so, um, you know, it's, it's the being a human, uh, creating human content, um, humanized content in the future, I believe is going to be the differentiator. Um, and one that will stand out in coming years. I love that you said that there is no AI without the commons. And that's what it, what is so interesting about this moment to me. And I hesitate to take a, a strong position myself, except that I do know that the net neutrality conversation has to be reopened and we have to have a more sustainable way of addressing net neutrality and a more robust conversation in light of what's happening with AI. Um, and I struggle because the actual action that they're doing is what all artists naturally do, right? All of us are a summary of all of our influences. So when I write um, a short story, I read Stephen King obsessively as a young person. So there is no way for not there to be forensic traces of Stephen King in my work. And this was actually a lot of my um, scholarship was looking at Shakespeare as because of the volume of words he produced or allegedly produced based on people's theories of who actually produced the works and how they were made um, was, you know, is the, can you do a cognitive forensics and, and find out some details of that historic cultural moment? Because he also represents a confluence of influences in that moment, but there's no way for Shakespeare and Stephen King to escape my work. There will be traces of it that you could be to de detect from a semantic level because of the number of Stephen King and Shakespeare's words I've consumed. Right. So, um, so th that is what AI is doing. It's doing what all recombinant activity is. So it is funny to me that um, like the writer's strike, I completely support the issue at hand, but at the same time, there's a complete misunderstanding. It relies on the myth of the sole creator Right. Mm -hmm. And so I'm finding myself forced to support a position that I don't fully believe on both sides of, of the argument. Right. Which is, you know, the, and then intellectual property starts to become a hero in this intellectual property uh, law becomes a hero in this for me, but it's also problematic to me because as a working artist, as well as a technologist, people are using my work all the time. Um, and I am using other people's work all the time. And I had somebody who tried to patent a piece of stage blocking once, and it was actually a very cliche piece of stage blocking. Uh, and, and, um, and I kept challenging him saying, you know, do you know how many people in history have done it before? And he was like, but aha, who filed for a patent on it? <laughs> right. And, and so that becomes its own kind of uh, competitive game, right? Of who's going to be the first to put their name on something because it is emergent. And when it's emergent, I don't know if you would agree with this. And that's what I posed to you. If something is emergent, you always notice that similar things appear at the same time all over the place, right? There's no, like if you even try to find the origin of the word open source, there are different no. trajectories it within that people were coming up with the same idea at the same moment. So what would you say about that? That sort of paradox of intellectual property, but there's no real true soul creator. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, it is, you know, as you're saying, it's, it's kind of like, 
you know, where we're using the tools of ownership and identity to to deal with things that would be better understood and managed in other ways. Um, <clears throat> you know, and I think that's the crux of this is that, you know, of course, um, everything is co-emergent. And of course, you know, every word we've said in this conversation is, you know, phraseology that we've picked up from any number of sources and we're combining it. And perhaps there's an occasional moment that's quasi unique in some way, but most likely 99% of conversation has very little to do with that. And, you know, we are kind of stochastic parrots um, in interesting ways ourselves. Right. But, but I think the bigger issue today is, is that, um, when we talk about things like the commons, that historically things were unowned but co-managed. You know, like um, a commons was never just there and anybody could do whatever they want. But everybody who participated in a commons, um, you know, could um, respond to the changes in it in some way. And I think this is what you see with the writer strikes um, or other debates around open source is that these platforms are privatizing, but we have no choice but to use them. You know, these vast parts of the Internet where, where we have no say in them, like there's no feedback loop that includes um, people who are um, affected by it. And, you know, you really see this where, you know, Google just like flat out fires the people who are they hired to be ethical police or, um, you know, to, to point these things out is that, you know, so there's no mechanism of engagement, but they have become our public space, a type of commons. Um, without access and and so i think that's where the real problems of these things lie is they're not made as part of the common good um and they're not being brought back into the common good um you know and, and understood as a public resource a type of commons you know and so those are the political questions and i think they're, you know, political questions for how we understand innovation in general, too. Jason, do you have any thoughts about that? Like no, I was enjoying listening to what Ian was saying about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I was I was hung up on having consulted uh, a lot across the Fortune 500 and having recently even taken an IC role in a short-term contract inside an organization going through like everybody is digital transformation, the question of ethics and culture uh, always appear on the horizon as getting in the way of business Um, and that people don't want to be slowed down. And it's usually driven when I think about the biggest perpetrators of that kind of silencing or dismissal. When I empathize with those people, it's because there's a gun to their head with sweat, pouring down their brow about time and speed. Um, Everybody is in a rush. And I've explored this 
quite a bit uh, in my writing about the first mover advantage is a complete falsehood. There are hundreds of cases in which the first mover advantage, Microsoft is probably one of them. Microsoft um, notoriously waited to see what Apple would do, what Steve Jobs would do um, and learn from it. Uh, Spotify emerged on the back of Pandora's failures. Yeah. Uh, Pandora, people forget that Pandora was like the one of choice for a long time. And, and uh, everything that you see in Spotify is a version of what was there. But they learned from um, Pandora's business uh, errors and were able to emerge as the, as the winner. Uh, so in, in that sense, um, I see this as being a really big focus on being the winner, getting there first. Um, and people who could turn the other way. So what would your advice be to organizations that are focusing on speed and competitive advantage that speed lends them? I mean, we, we always like to say that, um, you know, innovation is slow, creativity is slow. You know, even the ones that look fast, like you say, are building on these long, complex coming togethers of systems and ecosystems and you know the Wright brothers could move quickly in a way with flight and get from for them from zero to flight in a few years because there was like 200 plus years before them and they were in a milieu of um, all sorts of other experimenters and developers that they could draw on and they could do it in a more effective way than other people because of their uh, practices and approaches. But in that, you know, so there's like a fast and a slow part to innovation. Um, but that the idea that you can predict um, a timeline in this kind of linear way, like we want to roll this out in six months or whatever it might be, is is really not allowing um the the core um you could say engine of innovation is um the is un the unintended possibilities you know and and those are only um found harnessed evolved discovered developed where there's like time to see you know what else does something do what are its unintended capacities how can you put it into this relationship or that relationship what else could it become? And, you know, the more you push time, the more linear you need to become. And I think um, the more linear you become, the less emergent you are and the less surprising it is and the less you get the result you already know. Um, you know, which isn't to say you can't um, develop processes that are effective at innovation, but it's these are um, not like guaranteed linear processes and um, you know, and you have to work with that and you have to embrace, I think that uncertainty, all those dynamics. Um, so, you know, yeah, we've seen that need for speed recently in, uh, in speaking to, you know, one of the largest <laughs> companies in the world, you know, it, it, which probably touches a bit on your experience, the, the internal educator, I think you were, you were describing yourself as Jennifer, um, you know, to come in and educate a team of people uh, in this large organization um, quickly, 
right? Like we don't have time for, you know, a truly, uh, you know, uh, emergent innovation process. We don't have time for understanding the entire system that all that goes into, uh, why this population or part of a team or unit within this large organization was operating the way they were. Can you just come in and, and do a two hour workshop and just change, change them, transform them instantly, right? For me so that then I can execute my plan, my vision, the way I've designed it because they're all doing it wrong, you know, sort of a thing. Right. And so it's all about the quick fix. It's all about, um, the quick transformation, not investing the time, not only in the resources, but in the understanding of all the parts of the system and the processes that are feeding into uh, the reasons why and where th- and understanding those variables so that then you can move them and touch them and poke them and prod them and probe them for these different outcomes that you would prefer to have, right? And And so... Um, it's just an ignoring of the system uh, generally. Uh, that other, and then just going back to that first mover advantage, you know, when Microsoft was waiting for Apple, you know, the first mover advantage was significant. was a significantly longer runway than it is in 2023, right? Yeah. Even five years ago, first mover advantage may have been, you know, 18 months, but in 2023, it's six months. You know, if you could be, if you are, so disruptive to have come up with something novel uh, that has never been done before, which is incredibly difficult, right? But you are in six months, you will have a series of copycats. If you are, if you are demonstrating a modicum of success, right? And the open uh, so that first mover advantage is just constricted so much over time. It's, it's virtually non-existent. And open source descends upon these uh, little pieces of breadcrumbs like ants going over the, those there, here come the ants again. We're using ants today a lot over, yeah. over that and, and start to consume it and turn it into different things uh, so quickly. So I, I feel pretty optimistic about this being an open source moment. On the other hand, I'm concerned with the whole open AI story. And I wonder what you guys think about it. I'm researching it. Um, I have more questions than I do opinions at this point, but there is a lot of murkiness around the original, um, funding for OpenAI um, and um, whether it was truly open source and nonprofit is, uh, is, is something else that's being debated and looked at. I fear yeah. kind of cynicism because right now the open source community is an impossibility. That's why I, I look at it. And when I pull in non-open source, you know, what are you, believers, uh, they think what, what's being asked of them is uncompensated labor. So I've prepared this, this 10 point thesis about why open source contribution should almost be like a peace corps for every person who would like to become a technologist, right? Mm-hmm. Who like to work in technology that um, uh, proving yourself there is almost uh, necessary. Um, you know, having a GitHub profile, seeing that your pull request, seeing that you've participated in open source projects should be um, a kind of character witness to the people who are there. Um, so I wonder, uh, though, this cynical side that I, I know I'm tempted towards cynicism when I see the open AI story, and I'm still re- researching it because the story itself is, is, is the details are not widely broadcast, right? So 
Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the first book that comes out on the history of open AI, uh, because uh, it's going to be revealing, I think. Uh, but what do you think about open source? Could it be, will, will that optimism that's represented there, the idea that people contribute to the social good um, and a digital commons be destroyed by these actions? Um, or is it actually becoming uh, more empowered through this particular cultural moment of open AI and chat GPT? I don't know the backstory of um, that. There may be some, uh, some, um, deception around the development of open AI. So I'm not familiar with that, but. Um, I don't know either. Just full disclosure, I'm still looking okay. at it and it's very confusing. It's hard to find the details of the origin. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, but traditionally, right. We've, we've given back to society in physical ways. Um, and um, to give back to society in digital ways and contributing to open source, I think would mirror the, tra you know, the, the transformation to a digital society, right? Um, the idea of social proof, the idea of contributing to an open source project as a new developer programmer wanting to cut their teeth, get in, demonstrate what they're uh, able to do, learn a whole lot from mentors and areas and projects in which there's great uh, depth of interest um, is, uh, you know, is a model that should, uh, I believe, be adopted much more widely beyond just developers for software. Uh, digital transformation goes far beyond code. Uh, and, um, and I think it's, it's a beautiful um, uh, exemplar of what should be um, a part of our, our education system uh, and our society as a whole uh, to, um, to contribute in meaningful ways uh, beyond, um, the, you know, get, go to school, get a, get a degree and go fend for yourself and try and find a job. It would, it would make that transformation, uh, significantly easier for our youth and it would improve society in every way. So, um, I'm, I'm all for it. You, uh, higher ed is, uh, speaking of a domain we all know well, higher ed is, um, having an open source moment itself as we're challenging all these major journal uh, publication organizations. Yeah. I mean, I think there's all of those parts. The part, the one part I would say, I think that's really important is that the possibility, you know, say of, you know, knowledge commons and resource commons and all of these things um, isn't, I don't think, it can be reduced to giving back to society. Like we're doing something good and then um, our system can just stay as it is. I, I think the the real power here is that the, the commons as a modern movement is imagines itself and acts as a radical alternative to um <clears throat> you know, capitalism, private property, these models of ownership. And and in doing so, you know, it, it's obviously negotiating and living in this world as it is now. But it's, it's, it's more than just giving back. It's about how do we enact um, a radical alternative at a time when we really need it, when um, 
there's such radical inequality in the world. There's such environmental problems in the world. Are there, you know, it's, and this is like, I think one of the great um, creative, innovative questions, like, are there better ways to um, be with others, be with the planet than the models we have today, which is like in a nutshell to say something like, what could come after capitalism? Um, you know, and it's not about going back to models that um, have not necessarily worked, but what are other possibilities? And and this is, I think, the, the great promise of things like open source is how they participate in radical creative alternatives They're ex that are experimental, pragmatic. They're not trying to be some giant revolution with the vanguard and what have you. Um, and and I think this is um, the thing we really want to always keep front and center. Like we're not just we're not just trying to be more creative to just be creative or to make more money. Um, but how do we imagine that there's other ways to be alive today? Other ways that the planet and um, diverse um, human and non-human groups can do and thrive in different ways and the kind of commons movement is really i think uh hugely interesting highly creative um super dynamic part of that um you know and the more we we put our attention there the more i think interesting things happen I mean, it's really a test, right? Because the argument for capitalism or free market and without taking a, a position on whether we actually live in a free market society oh, yeah. or not, you know, that, that's a whole other debate. But the at least in idea form, the argument for it is that it promotes innovation because it harnesses self-interest in a productive way. And that the tendency towards, you know, remember Gordon Gecko from our generation, right? Greed is yeah. good. Um, and this idea that greed is going to motivate. And so we're living out that capitalist fantasy by watching these dramas, these adventure stories of the lone cowboy creator. Uh, we tried out having a female version of that with Theranos and Elizabeth uh, Holmes. Um, and we watched the tragedy of that and we keep repeating it. Uh, like we're not learning. In fact, it's not a cautionary tale. It's a playbook. Um, because yeah. not seeing, with the exception of Elizabeth Holmes, which is interesting, um, it, we're not seeing a lot of consequence. Uh, Newman from WeWork was just given $23 million more million for a new project that sounds exactly like WeWork. <laughs> um, so it's, yeah, uh, I, it's really kind of a bizarre moment where um, it's almost... You know, uh, yeah, go ahead. Um, I know we have to um, end really momentarily but i think the big part of all of those you know the the greed is good hyper individualism is they're just illusions they're, they they have no bearing on on what is actually happening um the complex entanglements of of private and public funding um the production of markets and the complexity of them and you know, and I think so on one hand, we have to get beyond like um, keeping to repeating stories that have no basis. In fact, like about, um, you know, how Tesla, Elon Musk did whatever. 
it's it's just preposterous fictions and and i think this is where like you know where we started talking about that um, innovation is an emergent non-linear process it doesn't come from somebody's head elon musk didn't magically do anything and it's like setting up the conditions for things to emerge in certain ways um, but we can change those conditions so things emerge in different ways with different types of relationships and possibilities. And I think that kind of ecosystemic thinking about emergence and change is what's really missing in general, whether it's at the level of an one innovator or the level of society. Well, you're right. We are over time, I'm noticing. I have to get better glasses. These are only good for very good <laughs> My clock is, is uh, uh, further away than I can see yeah. with these glasses. Um, however, so uh, I think that um, we, uh, we can close very shortly, but is there anything that you guys want to plug or have coming up? Or I'm not sure the date that this is going to air yet, but um, is there anything that we can plug for you? I mean, the one thing that you... Um will be uh ever present will be uh every friday we publish a newsletter on our website uh and uh, so we'd encourage uh, anybody listening that's interested uh in um emergent innovation uh in any way disruptive innovation we we wrestle with two questions really that guide all of our work what is innovation and how do you innovate uh and that that drives uh, each of our um essays uh, each week so i'd uh, be on our website emergent futures lab.com slash newsletter uh, and and then hit you know subscribe hit reply say hello introduce yourself we'd love to you know we love to chat with um, readers and subscribers highly recommend reading their materials it's very stimulating food for thought for those deep thinkers among us and i know a lot of this audience are those types of people mm -hmm. so thank you once again ian and jason it's great to see you as always i look forward to seeing you again in the future and thank you all for listening to singular xq the podcast about the humans of digital transformation singular xq is a nonprofit through the partnership with fiscal sponsor Fractured Atlas. Public support for this important work allows to openly share research and open source code for emerging technology. If you have the desire to help shape a robust digital commons that overcomes divide and would like to join in building a humanity-centered future, you can start by writing a review of this podcast, then subscribe and share. From the show notes, go to Singular XQ's Patreon page. You can also find Singular XQ on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Discord. This is Kai Brunner. Thanks for listening.